Hi everyone, and welcome to our latest Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and as usual, we're recording this remotely, so please note this might impact the quality of sound. Today, we wanted to explore one of the first post-Brexit regulatory initiatives to hit financial services firms, the new Prudential Regime for Asset and Wealth Managers. Based on a set of EU rules, the UK now has the freedom to implement this outside of the confines of existing EU legislation. But what does that actually mean for firms? I'm joined today by two great guests who are going to offer some really interesting perspectives. David Croker is a partner who leads PwC's Asset and Wealth Management Regulatory Practice. And Jill Townley is a director in our reward practice who co-leads our enumeration regulatory team. So David, as I said, these new rules are UK specific and not just onshored existing legislation from the EU. Given the new regulatory architecture and the objective that's been set by Treasury to address potential harms that firms pose to their clients and markets and specific vulnerabilities and risks inherent to investment firms, do you think these proposals are actually going to work? That's a really good question, Andrew. And I think the the new suite of rules on the face of it should achieve um, what they're designed to. I think one of the, the big criticisms that we've seen of the rules that are in place for many of the firms captured by this new regime um, have been that the rules today are, were designed with banks in mind. So as a result, they're focused on balance sheet risk. They're focused on financial risk that these firms are exposed to. And, and actually, in most cases, the, the thing that would kill an investment firm or knock an investment firm over is more the operational risk. So I think the the approach of the regime, certainly through the K factors, to try and uh, develop a suite of, of what are essentially proxies for the, the levels of risk and operational risk, particularly that firms pose, is, is really helpful in that regard. Um, I think the other sort of interesting component, and this is a, a sort of UK specific piece with the FCA's proposal to, to sort of update the ICAP process with the ICARA, um, is the expectation that firms take a really holistic view of risk across their organisations. So under the current regime, firms are almost forced down a road of, of pigeonholing risk against a, a series of quite distinct categories. So you've got the, the sort of Basel risk categories of credit risk, operational risk, market risk, etc. The new broader categories that the FCA has established of risk to client, risk to firm, risk to market, almost require firms to take that blank sheet of paper approach to, to risk identification and say, well, actually, given the nature of what it is that we do, the way that we do it, the markets and clients that we transact with, what risks are we exposed to? And, and if firms are doing that properly, you should see a much greater uh, variance, I think, in terms of the types of risks that different types of organisations are identifying, where I think, again, a, a criticism of the existing approach is that um, most investment firms come up with a very almost a template suite of risks that you'd expect them all, all to have. Um, so I think on the face of it, it, it looks positive, but clearly with all these things, the, the devil's in the detail of, of how it's implemented. Thanks, David. So speaking holistically about risk, I mean, in the past, regulators have often used pay as a tool to drive sound risk management. Is this regime any different, Jill? No, absolutely. Uh, remuneration is, is a really big part of, of the new regime. Uh, and I think this time it's going to really bring in some fundamental changes to, to how um, investment firms pay their, their key people. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it, in the past, it's fair to say that a, a lot of these firms have avoided applying some of the more onerous requirements to, to their key staff. Um, but but I think now, you know, if, if you like, their, their luck has run out um, and they're going to have to make some, some big changes. So, you know, some of the firms who, who previously always paid upfront in cash in, in terms of their bonuses are going to have to implement significant deferrals over you know three three or even five years um, and they're also going to have to pay significant chunks of people's bonuses in in, in instruments 
Um, you know, I, I think the other sort of big change that, that we're going to see is is the level of sort of public um, and media scrutiny on, on how much people are paid. So the, the new rules require firms to disclose how much they're paying people um, and the ratio of, of, of variable pay to fixed pay. Um, and I think that could attract some attention. Yeah, I can definitely see the media retention that will go with that kind of public disclosure. But I mean, who's actually going to be impacted by that? Does it apply to all staff? So it's not going to apply all to, to all staff and, um, you know, firms are, are required to apply sort of specific qualitative and quantitative criteria, which which defines which individuals are, are going to be in scope of the rules. Um, you know, typically that that's going to capture their, their senior management, their control functions and um, other sort of heads of key functions like HR and, and, and finance. Um, but it's also going to capture their high earners. And, and I think that's the category that's, that's really caught firms' attention because that's going to capture, you know, their portfolio managers, their highly paid sales staff. Um, having said that, you know, that there is a process that where individuals are, are captured um, on the basis of earnings alone, you can engage with, with, with the FCA to, to get those individuals excluded um, if you can make a good argument as to why that's appropriate. Um, that, however, is, is going to bring some difficulties in itself because a lot of these firms really haven't had to talk to the, the FCA about remuneration in the past. Um, so they're now going to have to interact with the regulator a lot more than, than, than they're perhaps used to and, and, and attract more regulatory scrutiny on, on how they pay people. Thanks, Jill. So, David, we, we started this by talking about the, the fact that this was a, a, not an onshore piece of EU legislation, but a UK um, specific initiative. We Also, I've seen lots of EBA publications and quite a lot of sort of EU concepts, you know, Jill sort of talking about material risk takers and, takers and things like that. But in a post-Brexit world, how different is the UK regime going to be from the EU regime? I think it, it sort of varies depending on the topic that the, the regime covers. So I think there are some areas where the UK has has diverged quite strongly from the European approach, which I think is interesting given this, if we think sort of think about where this was born, this was a, a piece of regulation that was largely driven by the UK in terms of the, the policy development um, within a sort of European process to, to sort of agree it for member states. But I mean, the UK has, has diverged. Obviously, the, the timeline is the big one. We're, we're seeing the UK delay implementation until January 2021 to allow firms a little bit more time, 2022, sorry, to allow firms more time to be ready. Um, the other sort of key area where the UK has diverged is on reporting. So the European um, approach has has developed some quite granular reporting templates and the UK has has taken a far more, or has proposed a far more simple uh, reporting template with with far less detail needed each quarter. There are then, I think, the, the pieces that are going to be more challenging for firms are some of the nuances. So some of the interpretations of things like the definition of assets under management and how that's calculated, where the European text is slightly different to the way that the UK is proposing to implement. Um, and there'll be more of those, I think, as we sort of work our way through the FCA consultation paper, where there'll, there'll be nuances of divergence between the, the regimes. I think the other really interesting piece, and this is less EU versus UK, but actually different member states taking slightly different interpretations of, of again, the European text. So we've already seen some of our clients challenged by uh, the German regulator potentially taking a slightly different approach to the calculation of AUM um, than other European regulators. So I think it's going to be one that's going to be really important for um, investment firms to, to keep an eye on as we move from now to, to June for the European implementation. And then again, as we sort of work towards the January 2022 implementation date in the UK.
So I think it's a you know it's a similar story for remuneration as well. Um, you know the the FCA were very involved in the development of of this regime at EU level. So you know on on the face of things that they're, they're bringing in a, a broadly consistent regime, and, and we'd expect all of the headlines in the UK to be the same as as those in the EU. Um, having said that, I think that you know the difference is really going to come in in, in the detail. Um, although we haven't had full clarity from the FCA yet on, on the detail of their remuneration implementation, um, there are already some divergences in, in what's coming out of Europe compared to what the FCA have said so far. So, for example, um, you know, the, the EBA have said that they're going to apply, you know, 12 month holding periods on, on anything that is, is paid in, in instruments. Um, they're going to restrict bonus payments to, to annually. So, so any kind of, um, you know, quarterly commission, for example, would, would, would not be compliant anymore. Um, they're also bringing in a, a restriction on um, being able to, to pay dividends uh, on, on, on bonuses that are paid in shares. Um, and I think all of these things, you know, if, if the FCA take a, a different approach and, and, and it does sound like they are going to do that on, on some of these areas, um, that just creates complexity for those firms that have UK operations and EU operations. Um, you know, that, that complexity then extends to, to the implementation deadlines because in, in Europe, you know, we've got this coming in um, at, at the end of June 2021, uh, but it's not coming in um, in the UK until the 1st of January 2022. So in particular for firms that, that have performance years that start in between those two dates, they're going to have a situation where these rules come into effect for individuals in their EU territories um, a whole year potentially before it comes into effect for, for their UK staff. And, and, and that's going to make things difficult as well. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about, about the potential impact, as you say, of, of deadlines that fall between those two dates and, the, and annual pay um, rounds and things like that. That's a really good point. I mean, David, uh, based on that, I mean, in the summer when we looked at the FCA's discussion paper, one of the things that both you and I were already taken with was the, the new ICARA process, which we felt was going to be quite a big deal for firms. But that, that hasn't formed part of the first consultation from FCA at Christmas. So is this still important? Have they deferred it because they think it's comparatively easy for firms to do? What's your take on that? My, my sense in ICARA is actually this is going to be probably the single biggest impact on firms that are in scope of this. So clearly there'll be some firms that have never done an ICAP before for which this will be a, a brand new process. And I think even those that need to convert from ICAP to this ICARA process will have an awful lot of work to do, not just in the document itself, but in some of the changes to the underlying processes. Um, I think that the sort of the key wording in the, the FCA's discussion paper that caught our attention in the summer was that reference to ICARA looking superficially similar to ICAP, but there being key differences. And I think that there's still a view pervasive across the industry that potentially all ICARA means is rebadging your existing document and just tweaking some of the language around how you categorize risks but for me more fundamentally actually in order to fully embed the new ICARA process and in order to embed that approach of risk to client risk to firm risk to, to markets risk management you need to change your whole narrative around how you manage risk through the organization so when you think about the sort of consequences of some of that you get to a place where you need to think about your risk appetite statements and are those aligned with risk to client, risk to firm, risk to market? And in most cases, people have aligned their risk appetite statements with the existing bars or risk categories. Um, there'll then be knock-on impacts for risk control self-assessments, risk technologies, risk identification and management processes, flowing right the way through to, to MI and reporting that's produced internally across the organization. So 
my sense is that ICARA hasn't formed part of that first FCA consultation because there's a slightly longer burn on it, because you don't need to have a fully fledged ICARA for go live on the 1st of January 2022. Um, actually, you give firms a bit more time to, to process that. But certainly we're already starting to see investment managers thinking about and other investment firms thinking about um, what they can do to start that transition from ICAP to ICARA, even this year before it's required to help almost avoid that big bang of ICAP to ICARA and to enable them to take their senior management teams on the journey with, with them in terms of what, what would need to be there. So as I say, for me, I, I think that's the going to have the single biggest impact for, for the work that firms are, are going to need to do and they should be prepared to do that work from April onwards. Well, certainly re-articulating risk is a, is a big challenge for firms. But th those two deadlines are fundamentally pretty challenging too. You know, June this year is barely five months away. January is less than a year. So what other things should firms be doing now aside from beginning to prepare for that, that ICARA transition? Yeah, and no, I'll perhaps answer it in two parts. So I think there's the sort of UK piece where you've got that slightly longer time frame. And I think in, in the UK, you've, you've been helped to a certain extent by the FCA almost breaking this up into to manageable chunks for the industry to start focusing on. But I think at an absolute minimum, you would expect that by now firms have done some sort of impact analysis to identify which parts of this new regime, given its breadth, are applicable to their business, given the activities that they undertake. Um, and I think if I was a UK investment firm, I'd then be thinking about addressing each of the requirements in that first FCA consultation paper that we've had. Um, ahead of the, the second consultation that's due in April um, landing. So actually focusing on getting your capital resources right, focusing on thinking through the regulatory consolidation questions, thinking about the K factors where we've got the right information and starting to prepare for some of that reporting. I think that would then set you up nicely when we hit April and the delivery of that second consultation paper, which as I said, will include the ICARA, which, which I think is the biggest single effort here. Um, Actually, that gives firms the bandwidth to be able to focus on the, the information that comes in that second consultation. And I think, interestingly, the second consultation contains a lot of the information that we haven't had much visibility of to date from the FCA. I think the, the sort of first consultation focuses on almost the, the known parts of the, the regime. Um, clearly, with any of this, a, a sort of effective implementation plan needs to be put in place. Um, the regulators at the moment are extremely focused on change management capabilities. So I think putting an effective project management process around all of this to make sure that any changes you make to address the, the requirements of consultation one are actually then sensible in the context of whatever changes you might need to make to processes and, and activities as part of consultation two. I think from a European standpoint, given we've got less clarity around what the local nuances might look like in terms of local implementation, because the regulators have been largely silent in terms of, of their local implementations, um, my sense is that organisations should be focusing on on what they what they can do and what they do know. So actually, the the regulation is quite clear around, for example, the K factors. It's quite clear around what qualifies as as regulatory capital. So I think the for focus for a European investment firm or a UK investment firm with with a presence in Europe will be to ensure that they're as well positioned as they can be for that first reporting period um, that will fall at the end of September uh, of this year. To make sure that you can submit timely and accurate um, initial regulatory reporting to, to the local regulators. Thanks David. And Jill, what should firms be doing on the remuneration side? 
So I think the key thing for firms at the moment is really understanding sort of how big um, is the problem for them um, sort of based on, on, on their characteristics and, and which of the rules are going to apply to them and really start managing um, staff's expectations about how they're going to be paid in the future. So, I mean, if you think about it, if, if you're a, an individual who, who is used to receiving a bonus, which is the same size as your salary, um, and now you're only going to receive a third of that and you're going to have to wait sort of two, three years for, for the rest of it, that's going to have a significant impact um, on cash flow and, and firms are going to have to really think about, about how they manage that. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it's really important for firms to understand which rules are, are going to apply to them, uh, which individuals um, are going to be in scope, um, and then also how they intend to, to, to meet some of the, the more challenging requirements. So, you know, the other area that, that we're seeing firms really focus on at the moment is um, the instruments piece. So if you're if you're a public firm uh, and you've got listed equity, then, then it's easy. Um, but if you're a private firm or, or a partnership, it, it's more more complex and it's going to take a lot more time to, to, to design an instrument or or find an instrument that's going to meet the requirements and um, so it's better to start that sort of sooner rather than later. Thanks Jill and I think yeah that particular nuance for example around around finding the right instruments if you're in a partnership is, is clearly quite challenging. I mean David my experience of implementing regulatory change is that there are often other sort of unintended consequences or nuances or particular subsets of firms that face some real challenges. What, what's your perspective on that for the current rules? Yeah I, I think one of the really interesting ones isn't it it sort of links into your last question around the, the different deadlines of, of June and January. I think it's important to sort of flag that January isn't the end of this. I think there's there's elements of of this regime that are going to require um, changes to be made further down the line. So I think there's there's an issue there for firms making sure that they don't hit January 2022 and just think they're done. That this will be something they'll need to keep an eye on and keep abreast of as we sort of move through 2022, 2023, and and beyond. Um, but I think, with, as you say, with with all regulatory change, there are, are consequences that sort of extend beyond the sort of intended consequences um one of the big challenges that that we've seen um has been around system adequacy so the new regime requires quite a different set of data than firms have historically used to, to calculate regulatory capital requirements um and i think what we're seeing is that a uh, sort of underinvestment in technology across the investment firm space historically has led to a, a challenge for many firms in terms of extracting the right data and getting the right systems to talk to each other so key examples would be actually in order to calculate some of these new k-factor requirements you need to extract trading data um, that needs to loop in with finance data and a lot of the, the preparatory work that we've done with clients has actually demonstrated that's quite challenging for many firms to do so i think that there's going to be need to be some conversations around system investments and, and changes that might need to be made there i think that the biggest impact i see this having is is potential restrictions in the m a activity particularly in the uk um, so the UK has chosen to um, not implement an, an equivalent to the existing waivers regime uh, that allowed firms to discount the impact of goodwill um, where they were highly acquisitive from their regulatory capital calculations for the group. Um, what's been proposed instead, the group capital test, is designed in a similar way but doesn't quite have the same benefit for organisations. So regardless of whether you go through full consolidation in the new rules or whether you apply the group capital test, in both those scenarios, you need to hold capital equal to the value of the goodwill that gets created through any transactions. And when you take into account some of the multiples that 
um, exist in the market at the moment for some of the M&A activity, that, that comes at a huge capital cost um, to investment firms that are, are seeking to grow inorganically. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see what the impact of that is. There are there are some solutions and some workarounds. Firms can look at uh, potential legal entity restructuring um, to offset the impact of some of that goodwill and extract themselves from regulatory consolidation requirements. But but all of that will require some effort and a, a fair bit of focus um, from management teams between now and January to make sure that if they have got a plan to be acquisitive going forwards, that they've taken the steps ahead of this new regime coming in to enable them to do that. And I think. That's going to be particularly challenging for, for some of those IFA consolidators, as an example, where actually we're continuing to see huge amounts of deal activity in that space. And actually, a lot of those haven't been subject to some of these more onerous requirements. Historically, these are requirements that will be coming onto a number of those firms for the first time. Thank you. Yeah, that, that M&A type activity really could be quite challenging. You're right. Uh, a lot of what you said there, though, also for me, screams data uh, in its widest sense. So are you seeing firms looking at using tools and technology as a solution for that? In in part, yes. I think there's, there's almost a, a two-tier system in play here. I think for those organisations that are, are more simple, that have a limited range of activities and therefore are in scope of a, a, a sort of lesser number of K factors, for some of those, actually, they, they might find that once you get your, your own systems sorted, actually, some of these calculations are relatively straightforward. They're relatively linear calculations of asset assets under management, for example, times a, a sort of two basis point value to come to a number. Uh, so, so if you're exposed to few K factors, I think most of those organizations at the more simple end are looking at trying to do this in-house. Clearly, then, as you sort of move up that spectrum of complexity, both in terms of size, products, regulatory permissions and activities, um, this starts to become a, a bit more challenging. And we've certainly seen a number of firms exploring um, technology options um, and tools to help them manage this, both through a, a sort of submission of regulatory reports, but also in terms of how do you keep that ongoing focus on your, your capital adequacy and your financial resource adequacy going forwards. Um, I think particularly for those organisations that are operating uh, across jurisdictions, so both in the UK and in, in member states, you're going to see that actually tooling will become quite important because of the nuances and the, the differences in the reporting frameworks, um, actually to avoid having to create a number of manual processes around this, technology is likely to be the answer that, that makes that more straightforward. Um, but then I think there's a really interesting question around which way do you go with this, because there's you can either fix the underlying systems and, and make those all talk to each other and, and make them work coherently. That's obviously going to cover a huge cost when you sort of talk about a full IT transformation program. Um, or do you look at putting a, some sort of aggregation tool over the top that just takes data feeds from various systems um, and then allows you to sort of extract the regulatory capital, liquidity um, and reporting calculations that you might need to do on a, a periodic basis. But, but I think we'll, we'll certainly see a, a growing market in terms of providers looking to, to offer tools um, to market participants that, that will be challenged by this. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jill. I, I feel like we've only really scratched the surface of this. It's a, it's a really interesting and clearly very detailed and complex uh, subject. I mean, just to end, I'm going to ask a final question of each of you, if I can. It's a different question each. Um, so, David, to start with, a uh, very simple one. Which is better, the UK regime or the EU regime? And, and not wanting to sit on the fence and not commit to an answer. I, I think it's hard to say which regime is better. I think they both share some very similar characteristics. It was a, a suite of regulation that was designed um, collaboratively so that the UK were, were largely driving it, but it was it was done through a European process. 
Um, clearly, as we've talked about, there are some nuances and, and the UK is diverging from some of that European text in places. And I, I think I'd almost answer the question through a lens of if I was a, a firm needing to implement this, which one would I prefer to implement? And I think with all regulatory change implementation programmes, clarity is key. Um, so I think actually the fact that we've got the FCA issuing consultation papers, being quite open about its intentions, um, having that slightly longer time frame, which suggests that they're, they're more willing to engage with the industry to find something that works. And we, we sort of spoke at the beginning around the Treasury's objectives and the sort of ongoing focus of making the UK an attractive place for investment firms to establish themselves. Um, I think it, it's, it's probably going to be easier for firms to implement the UK um, version of this than the EU piece, largely because of, of time frame, but, but also because of the, the level of clarity that we're seeing from the regulator. Thanks, David. And Jill, David there talked very briefly about the UK uh, being an attractive place for businesses, but clearly Treasury had the goal a goal around UK competitiveness. Do you think this is going to make the UK a more competitive place compared with the EU, or is this now a, a debate globally? So I think that's a really interesting point, and, and I think there's a few lenses um, that you can consider there. So, you know, firstly, if you look at um, the UK versus Europe, you know, I, I think we've we've got some really positive um, developments in terms of the FCA seems to be, you know, more generous in terms of where they're setting thresholds. Um, so, so potentially fewer firms will be in scope in the first place in the UK, and also fewer individuals um, will be caught by by the more onerous rules. So, I think that's really positive. But, but having said that. Um, you know, when we look at um, a lot of the, the UK investment management sector, they tend to be sort of um, global firms. That means that obviously they, they have, um, you know, significant populations in the US, in Asia, um, and, and those, those jurisdictions aren't subject to these kind of pay regulations. And, and, and therefore that does create competition issues when UK firms have to apply these rules to their entire population and they're competing against firms who are, are you know, playing on a, on a different field, if you like. I think the you know the the final thing to think about is actually competitiveness back here um, at, at home in the UK. So you know I think how the FCA has decided to, to implement the regime in terms of making a distinction between uh, the smaller firms and, and and the larger firms with with the smaller firms not having to implement things such as deferral and, and payment in instruments that is actually going to create a sort of two tier market um, in the investment sector in the UK. Um, I'm certainly aware of of a number of, of larger firms who have bigger balance sheets and, and will be subject to all of the rules um, looking over their shoulder at, at some of their smaller competitors who are, are going to you know try and use this as an opportunity to poach some of their key talent and, and make the most of the fact that they have more flexibility in how they pay people. Well thank you both for your time today and a really fascinating discussion. Uh, it's really interesting to hear about both the challenges of the new regime from data to consolidation to enumeration but also the impact of the new regulatory architecture in the UK as we begin to see the realities of how broadly consistent regulation actually in some circumstances becomes awkwardly different regulation and how that impacts firms both here in the UK and those firms with both a presence in the UK and Europe. And to our listeners, I hope you found this episode really helpful. Please do share this podcast and subscribe to future episodes and I'll be back next month with our next episode.